We are uh, still in chapter 1, and uh, we'll be reading this. Hebrews is a unique book. Uh, there's lots of great stuff in here. There's lots of very challenging stuff, and there's some things that just make you think. And so, please turn with me in your Bibles. You can look on uh, in the outline. You can look on your device, uh, whatever it is. <coughs> You'll want to just go ahead and get there to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to start about halfway through verse 3 this morning. And uh, that's a little change. Mostly because I didn't want to start in the middle of a sentence. So let's turn to Hebrews 1. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we do need it. We need it as much as the first congregation needed to hear this message. We run after other things trying to solve our problems and deal with our issues. Teach us to run to Jesus first. So we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would press this truth home, and make our hearts believe in Jesus' name. Amen. We're always trying to figure out how exactly are we supposed to live as Christians. One uh, criterion for evaluating uh, how we should live as Christians is this group of questions you could ask yourself. Uh, Does this work for the poor? and factory workers? Would this be plausible for a mother of preschoolers or a lonely man who is dying? You see, Jesus has a way with people, people who are facing trouble. Scripture works with people who get sweaty, weary, and teary, who worry about money, who find pain and sickness a long, hard road. It is for war-weary sufferers. Here's a companion question. Does this work for strugglers? 
Jesus has a way with people. People who feel their sins, who are tempted to drink too much, who get angry too easily and can't let it go, who are consumed by irrational fears and can't imagine an exit strategy. Scripture works with people who find it hard to walk in the light and find it too easy to stumble and fall. These problems of everyday life are the flashpoint for our life in Christ. The places that we need him, the places that we seek him, the places that we find him, the places where our faith is worked out in love. We meet Jesus in our troubles and in our struggles, in our vulnerability to suffering and in our tendency to sin. And Jesus meets you in all of your pressures and preoccupations and Jesus meets you in all of your obsessions and compulsions. And his underlying foundation sounds so unassuming. We read in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sounds pretty simple. His goals for us sound sort of basic. He says things like, love is patient, love is kind, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And if all that is true, Jesus calms our drivenness and lightens our burdens. He's good for the long, hard road in the right direction. Jesus meets you every day and helps with everyday things. But don't you wish there was an easier way? I mean, come to Jesus and open your Bibles sounds way too simplistic for the harsh realities of my life. Wouldn't it be a lot better if we had our own personal guardian angel? A guardian angel who could swoop in and save the day whenever things got rough. A guardian angel who could dispel anxiety with a snap of his fingers. A guardian angel who could take away our temptations and keep us from sin even when those things look oh so good. And it doesn't even have to be one of the big name angels, you know, like Michael or Gabriel. I'd settle for one of the lesser angels, you know, as long as they could solve my problems and deal with my issues better than I can. You know, perhaps I'd even consider Clarence Oddbody. As obviously some of you know, Clarence uh, is the guardian angel of the Christmas movie It's a Wonderful Life, who's sent to help George Bailey, wonderfully played by Jimmy Stewart. Now, Clarence is a somewhat goofy-looking old man who can't quite close his assignments and thus hasn't yet earned his wings. But in the end, he did okay by George Bailey. And so if there's nobody left, I'd settle for Clarence. And apparently this way of thinking is neither new or novel. I mean, come to Jesus and open your Bibles involve me admitting that I have some sort of issue and something should be done about it. Wouldn't it be way cooler if some sort of supernatural being just showed up and fixed things without anyone else ever knowing about it? I mean, that's what we want. That's what people have wanted for thousands of years. 
Now, I have no historical or scientific evidence, but my gut feeling is this sort of interest in heavenly beings uh, serving as our own personal troubleshooter uh, has had a popularity surge in every lifetime. And so it was in the early church as well. The book of Hebrews was written uh, approximately 30-some years after Jesus, and already there were Christians who were leaving Jesus for other things. And one of those things was angels. And unlike today, they had two very good reasons for doing so. One was impending persecution. You know, and we all saw what the Archangel Michael did in episode 86, and who wouldn't want that guy on their side? Seriously, we talk about guardian angels, you know, protecting us from a car accident. And I'm not saying they don't do that. But you'd be way more interested in having a guardian angel if an angel uh, agent of the state was holding a sword to your throat. Your interest would peak dramatically. And these Hebrew Christians are getting it from both sides. The state is coming after them as an illegal cult group. And the Old Covenant Jews are coming after them saying they have betrayed their race and their faith. And they need help. And they need it now or they're going to bail on the church and bail on Christianity and bail on Christ. Second, and more importantly, the main reason the author of Hebrews needs to emphasize Christ's superiority to the angels has to do with their association with the old covenant given at Mount Sinai. In Hebrews chapter 2, we'll see an example of this teaching. It says the Old Testament law was declared by angels. And in Acts chapter 7, we learn that the law was delivered by angels. So their association with the giving of the law at Sinai has some biblical support. And in saying that Christ is superior to the angels, the author is emphasizing the superiority of the new covenant over the old, and therefore the folly of turning back and turning away from the gospel. And he makes this point by means of seven Old Testament quotations. This is a pattern we'll see all throughout the book of Hebrews. The writer sets an example for us in the authority that he gives and assumes for Scripture. And we'll look at these citations this morning from Hebrews 1, starting in verse 3 and all the way through verse 14, which taken all together uh, prove the superiority of God's Son to the angels. But before we get there, let's quickly review what the book of Hebrews is all about. And uh, for that, we need to be reminded of the theme uh, for this book. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me again to Hebrews 1. where in the second sermon of this new series. We'll be here about six months, uh, which I've called Jesus is Better, Make My Heart Believe. And I hope you'll understand that by the time we get to the end. It's an important word, better, in Hebrews. It's found in a number of places in the New Testament, uh, but none more frequently than here in this book. Hebrews is a book about persevering in the faith, and it reminds us of all the challenges to our faith, and it points us to a sure foundation for living the Christian life, and that is understanding the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, the author of Hebrews is going to point us to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. And we need this message today and every day 
just as much as those uh, folks in that first congregation needed it. They're struggling with the Old Testament and these outdated forms and trying to follow the covenant, and they just wanted to go back because it was easier, and they knew the rules, and it was very clear. And this following Jesus stuff is not quite as certain, and they're not quite sure what to do. And they just keep told, you know, you need to have faith and believe and follow Jesus, and it's just easier if you get a list of rules. And let's go back to that. And the author is saying, no, Jesus is better. Maybe you're entering this new year and you've got issues too. And you're flagging in your faith and it's hard to pray and reading the Bible has become rare. And you feel that everything is uh, coming up short in your life. And you're disappointed and you're disillusioned and you're starting to look somewhere else for the answers. Well, if you're there, as I said last week, say again this week, and I'll probably say a bunch more times, Hebrews is waiting for you. And the author is saying, no matter what you're looking for, Jesus is better. He's a better Savior, a better priest, a better sacrifice for a better covenant, and a better way of life. So if you're lacking and you're empty, it's not because Jesus isn't what you need, it's because you don't have enough of him. And that's why this word better keeps coming up over and over again, because we are constantly tempted to think there's something else out there that's better than Jesus. And the author is saying over and over again, no, Jesus is better. There is nothing else out there better than Jesus. And I want you to see that and feel that. And today in our text, the author makes the same point by saying that when life gets tough, when life gets uncertain, when life is confusing, don't go looking somewhere else. And especially, don't go looking for angels. And he quotes seven Old Testament passages to press home four truths that show us why Jesus is better. The first thing is he reminds us that angels are merely angels. Christ is the Son. <coughs> Turn with me again to Hebrews 1. Again, we'll start about halfway through verse 3. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So let me ask you, is Jesus enough for you? That's what the congregation's wrestling with here. Is Jesus enough? If he's all that I'm left with, is he enough? Is there something better out there? Than Jesus? Is there something or someone outside of Jesus that's better, that's superior, that's more excellent? There's a real sense in which the author of this book has a one-point sermon and a one-point answer. Jesus is enough. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is more excellent. And I believe we need to hear that word this morning. There's two things I want you to see 
right away from this passage. The first one's right here in verse 4. It says, Jesus the Son is better than the angels. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This comparison with angels is because this congregation has been tempted to think that angels are better than Jesus. Now, my guess is that very few of you worshipped angels this week. If you did, I'd like to talk with you. But my guess is very few, if any of you, did that. Now, my other guess is that a great many of you, perhaps all of you, underestimated Jesus this week. And the clear message of this book is don't ever underestimate Jesus. He is so excellent. He is so superior. He is so much better that it's impossible to overestimate uh, him. So don't underestimate Jesus. And all of us are tempted to do that. We think that there's something, if we just had, then life would be right. And if that's something, whatever it is, whatever we think we need in order for life to be right, if that something isn't Jesus, then we're underestimating Jesus. Or maybe we think that Jesus and the promises he brings, well, you know, they just haven't panned out for me. And I need to look somewhere else for satisfaction and hope and joy and fulfillment. And the author of Hebrews is standing over that temptation. And he's telling you, don't underestimate Jesus. There's nothing that compares with Jesus. Not even Michael the archangel, not even Gabriel, not even all the angels combined. None of them compare to Jesus. And just in case our hearts are having a hard time taking that in, he says, let me just demonstrate that to you from Scripture. Isn't that great? This pastor preaching to this congregation almost 2,000 years ago says, let me prove my main point from the Bible. Let me do a little exposition for you, and let me show you from the Bible. I think that's awesome. He goes to several scripture passages, all of which were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, and he says, I can prove to you that Jesus is superior to the angels. Even before he came, I can prove this to you from the scripture. And he takes you to seven scripture passages, and he makes four claims about Jesus. And the first thing he says, looking at verses 4 and 5, is that Jesus is the Son of God. He quotes from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, you are my son, oh excuse me, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And in both of these passages, he says that Jesus is the Son of God. The angels are not the Son of God, only Jesus is. And these passages apply to Jesus and to Jesus only, and he is better than the angels. And the argument of these verses is pretty straightforward. By means of these Old Testament passages, the writer of Hebrews demonstrates that the claim of verse 4, that Jesus' supremacy rests on the inheritance of the name Son of God. There are several times in Jesus' life when a heavenly voice is heard proclaiming him to be God's son. Think about it, for uh, instance, when the angel Gabriel announced the birth of a son to the Virgin Mary, Luke chapter 1, he said he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. 
In the same way, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, we're told the voice of God was audibly heard and said, Matthew 3, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then when Jesus was transfigured in glory before the three disciples, God's voice was heard, Matthew 17, saying the same thing, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Likewise, in John chapter 1, we're told that in the incarnation at Christmas, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So if Jesus is eternally the Son of God, what do we make of the statement in Psalm 2, quoted here in Hebrews 1, that today I have begotten you? Fortunately, the New Testament helps us elsewhere, as is often the case. One of the great principles of interpreting the Bible, there's two great principles, actually there's like 20, but two really big ones. One is Scripture interprets Scripture, and that's going to be laid out for us again and again and again in the book of Hebrews. The other one is context is king. You have to understand what's going on if you're going to understand that passage. So here we follow uh, this principle of Scripture interprets Scripture. We call that the analogy of faith. And in the case of Psalm 2, we're being helped by the Apostle Paul who cites it in his sermon in Acts chapter 13. He says, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This refers to Christ's resurrection. And the idea of begetting here is that of declaring or manifesting this fully. Paul amplifies this in Romans 1. He writes that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why these first century Christians have to hold fast to their faith in Christ, just like us. When God raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, having been crucified for our sins, God the Father brought him into his inheritance, manifesting before all the world his status as the divine Son of God. By means of the resurrection, God the Father declared that Jesus Christ and he alone is the worthy heir and the true Son of God. And so the point is, to which of the angels did God ever say things like this? And the answer is, God said no such thing to any of the angels, and since he specifically honored Jesus Christ with the name of his own son, Christ must be recognized as better. So that being the case, who do we turn to in our time of need, in our trials and tribulations? Who do we turn to for salvation? Whom shall we worship as Lord, and whom shall we follow except for the one proclaimed worthy to be the Son of God? That brings us to our second point, which is that angels are merely worshipers. Christ is worshipped. Angels are merely worshipers. Christ is worshipped. Now, verse 6 gives us the second argument that Jesus is better, that the angels are commanded to worship him. And to prove this, the writer cites 
either Psalm 97 or Deuteronomy 32, probably the psalm because he quotes the psalms a lot, but both of which include the statement he quotes here. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So first we have his introductory statement when he brings uh, the firstborn into the world, to which he adds the command that the angels should worship him. This is probably referring to the coming of Jesus and his first advent, beginning with the virgin birth. Perhaps the most spectacular part of that first Christmas was the choir of angels singing praise. Angels also rejoiced at the open tomb and at Jesus' ascension into heaven. And the book of Revelation, chapter 5, reveals the angels forever worship the Son, who is the lion and lamb as he sits upon his throne. Furthermore, the writer of Hebrews speaks of Christ as God's firstborn. And it's for this that he's worshipped. Now, the point here seems to be uh, Jesus' special status over the whole created realm. It doesn't mean that Jesus is first among creatures, but that he's exalted above the creatures. So when the firstborn enters the world, it should be no surprise to discover that the angels are his chief worshipers. This is God's command, their delight. It shows that Jesus is the one we ought to worship, the one we want to trust and obey and follow. And far from worshiping angels, we should follow their example and worship the Son. This also reminds us of our next point, our third point, which is that angels are merely creatures. Christ is creator. Angels are merely creatures. Christ is creator. Starting verses 7 through 12. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, there's way too much to cover in these verses, so I'm going to focus in on verses 10 through 12. I'm going to skip some of those others. But in these verses, and I'm focusing on these because I think they're the high point of the whole passage. And I think here the Holy Spirit, speaking through the writer of Hebrews, informs us of these words spoken by the Father to the Son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And here we are deliberately reminded of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here that work of creation is ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ with all the implications of divinity that accompany it. We see the striking contrast between creation and the Son of God. Heaven and earth, we're told, will perish. The great works of God and creation will come to an end. The majesty of the mountains, the roaring of the waterfall, the beauty of the valley, all these will run their course and ultimately come to an end. Like an old set of clothes, they're wearing out even now. 
stars are using up their hydrogen, matter is converted to energy, and there is loss. And ours is a dying universe with its end in sight. And if this is true of God's creation, how much more true of man's creation, of our works? The tallest skyscraper will fall, the dams will burst, the greatest achievements will be forgotten. And all this will happen not merely in the long-running course of time and uh, with its decay, but it'll happen suddenly by God's Son. When he comes to end history and judge the world, he will roll it up like a robe and exchange it for a new garment. Apostle Peter writes of this in 2 Peter 3. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, the present form of this world is passing away. But of God's Son, we read the exact opposite. Look at the end of verse 12. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. It's hard to imagine a more forceful portrayal of Christ's divinity, a mighty Lord and God who's worthy of our faith. But if you think about it, in the end, all is lost in this life. And our lives on this earth are riddled with hardship and difficulties. And even though we know that death awaits each and every one of us, the man or woman who trusts in the Lord sees uh, him in his eternal reign, sees him in his unchanging character, and in that we find hope. God said in Isaiah 51, The heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. And despite all that we may suffer in this life, through faith in Christ we receive a salvation that is eternal and secure. And then finally we're brought to the last of the Old Testament quotes that are used here to uphold the supremacy of Christ. And we're reminded, verses 13 and 14, that angels are merely servants. Christ is king. Angels are merely servants. Christ is king. We read there, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Verse 13 shows us the opening words of Psalm 110. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This enthronement is keeping with what he said at the beginning of our passage back in verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament because of what it tells us about where Christ is now and what he's doing now. And the imagery of him seated comes from the Oriental court where the king sat on his throne while all his servants uh, stood before him and they all stood to show their deference and his superiority. And this is a picture we see in the Bible that we have of God's throne room. We find that in Revelation 7. The angels and elders and living creatures stand before the Lord, seated on his throne, 
worshiping him, ready to do his will. And to be told, sit at my right hand, signifies a singular honor. Shows power and authority in the kingdom. And the fact that Jesus is seated on the throne, first of all, it doesn't mean that he's inactive. It doesn't mean he's just sitting there, he's not like a couch potato, he's not watching the game or anything like that. In fact, he's given great attention to the affairs of his flock, of his people. Being seated, he wields authority for the sake of the church. Just reading through the book of Acts, you'll see how active the ascended and seated Christ was on behalf of the early church. He sent forth his spirit to empower his human messengers and to bring many to faith, as he did on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. When Stephen, the first martyr, was facing the bloodthirsty mob uh, in Acts chapter 7, he cried out, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus stood to receive his own into the heavenly courts. When the zealous persecutor Saul of Tarsus was heading to Damascus to harass the believers there, the risen Christ appeared to him in all his glory, saying in Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Or why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Indeed, he commands angels, and he does send them for the service of his people, as was the case in Acts 12, when Peter was rescued from prison by an angel. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels are servants who are sent. The risen Christ is the one doing the sending. Now, I think most of the time we'll never know when he sent angels to minister to us in our time of need or to uh, thwart spiritual antagonists or to strengthen us in our time of weakness. I think that happens, and most of the time we're utterly unaware of it. We also know that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to lead us to him and to teach us to him. And we also know that Jesus intercedes for us with the Father, ensuring our acceptance in God's presence, sanctifying our petitions, and pleading our every cause from his seat of honor at God's right hand. Christ is exceedingly busy on our behalf. He who upholds the universe by the word of his power, as we're told in verse 3, also upholds our faith by his prayers for us. Think about that. How awesome is it that every day Jesus is praying for you? He told his disciple Peter, at Peter's time of greatest weakness, he told him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Hebrews says that Christ will sit at God's right hand until I make your enemies um, a footstool for your feet. So who then are the enemies of Christ? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God or the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
the curse of the law, sin, Satan, worldly powers, death, the grave, these are the enemies of Christ. And during his earthly ministry, he advanced into the ranks of his enemy, casting out demons, purifying the lepers, healing the sick, exposing hypocrisy, opposing false teaching, humbling the proud, cleansing the temple, and all the while calling sinners to faith and repentance. And it's especially in the sharing of the gospel that he now overcomes his foes as men and women come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord sits enthroned at God's right hand until his enemies become his footstool. This is the goal of his heavenly ministry, after which he'll present his triumph to God the Father and he'll reign forever and ever as proclaimed by the voices in heaven in Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now at the end of verse 3, we read, after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. No angel, even the most exalted one, would dare sit down in God's presence, let alone at his right hand. But Christ is higher than the highest angel. Unlike them and unlike his ministry here on earth, in heaven he is not a servant, but the eternal Son of God and the high King of heaven. The place where he sits is the place of highest honor, and it's his by right. Such is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect prophet uh, through whom God speaks, who is the great high priest by whom sinners come to God, and who is the true king who lives and reigns now and forevermore. And if you have never come to Christ, it is to this Christ that you have never come. And if your heart is cold towards Christ, it is to this Christ that you are cold. And if you're thinking about deserting Christ, it is this Christ that you are leaving. To turn away from Christ is always to turn away from the greater to the lesser. It is to turn away from the glorious to the shoddy. It is to turn away from the most radiant light to the outer darkness. And if all this is true, what could you possibly need that cannot be found in Christ? Do you need pardon for your sins? See him exalted and know that God has accepted the sacrifice of his blood on your behalf. Do you need reconciliation to God? There he is at God's right hand, interceding, praying for you and offering his own perfect work as the ground of your acceptance? Do you need a new life or a new heart or a new strength in order to follow him? From his heavenly throne, he sends forth his Holy Spirit to work within you with his power. Do you have troubles, difficult decisions to make, choices that worry you, problems that cause you fear and anxiety? Christ is enthroned in power, a Savior who cares for you, with wisdom and love, with power and a heavenly purpose for your future. The practical value of this is immense, for it leads us to trust him and him alone. You fear death. He's reigning until even that enemy shall be conquered. 
And because he reigns victorious, death will have no hold on you, but only ushers you into his courts with praise. What is there that you might need that the risen and reigning Lord and Savior is not the answer? There is nothing you might face, nothing that you might lack, nothing that you might need in all your weakness and sin and brokenness that is not found in him who loves you and gave himself up for you and now reigns forever as Savior and Lord who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever and whose years have no end. Because Jesus has a way with people. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you have given him to us as our Creator, our Redeemer, and Lord, the only one worthy to be worshipped. Drive these truths deep in our hearts and make our hearts believe no matter what is going on in our lives, that Jesus is better. Amen. Six months, I want you to flood social media with the hashtag Jesus is better. Think of how he's better in your life. It could be the simple, as I heard this morning, Jesus is better than a loud snoring husband. <laughs> it could be to the big things in your life. Jesus is better than not knowing him at all. Whatever it is in your life, let's flood social media with Jesus is better, and then we get to go there and see what God is doing in our lives. Here, blessing from God, from Galatians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.